Well, why don't you grab your Bibles and open them to Mark chapter 9 this morning. Mark chapter 9. Here on Sunday mornings, we're going through the Gospel of Mark, verse by verse. And technically, we finished this chapter last week, where Jesus was giving some critical lessons on discipleship. But we found that mixed into his teaching were some other shocking warnings regarding hell. And we've returned to take a closer look. Mark chapter 9, just look at verse 43, for example. I'll just start off. He said, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. In verse 47, he says, if your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die, the fire is not quenched. A lot of people are shocked to hear such words come from the mouth of Jesus. And they're equally shocked to learn that nobody spoke more about hell in the Bible than Jesus. In fact, Jesus talked more about hell than he did heaven. And these are hard sayings. For some people, hard to understand. For others, hard just to accept. And they're unpopular. Talk of hell is was just as unpopular in Christ's day as it is today. And that's why today many preachers have opted just to skip Skip the hard sayings of Jesus. We made that point last week. Let's not talk about them because they're too divisive, too unpopular. That They turn people away, and, and they're right. These hard sayings of Jesus, they are divisive, they are unpopular, and they will turn people away. Jesus himself faced that. Tens of thousands of people tuned out the ministry of Jesus when he turned up the heat and started teaching like this. He went from drawing crowds of tens of thousands to literally being rejected with just a few supporters left. Everyone turned on him. And what happened to Jesus would today be classified as a PR disaster. His popularity just plummeted. But that didn't stop Jesus from speaking the truth. He kept on preaching, even if it was hard to swallow, hard to accept, not because he felt like condemning people, but because people had to be warned of danger and guided toward rescue. And today that need hasn't changed. So for us, far from skipping over the harder sayings of Jesus, we, we need to be devoting more time to understanding and, and heeding his warning of things to come. And if you can't guess already, that's what we're going to do today. And last week we, we went through this whole passage at the end of Mark where Jesus says a lot and he, he talks about hell. And we've returned to not skip over it, but to devote more time to really understanding what was Jesus trying to say about hell. What does he think about hell? It's not popular. It's not fun to talk about. Neither is going to the doctor. A lot of invasive and uncomfortable tests they put you through these days. From biopsies to mammograms to colonoscopies. Not fun. But if they warn you of a real disease and some danger, you're going to appreciate them. And you're going to appreciate the cure all the more. And when scripture talks about hell, it's not fun, but it's needed because you've got to come to terms with the bad news before you you can really embrace and accept the good news. And there is good news, which we'll get to. Today we want to talk about both. So we're going to resume in in Mark chapter 9. But before we get there, I also want to point out that even in our day and age, it's even more important for us to be talking about hell because not only is it unpopular, but it's also under attack with the rise of liberalism over the past couple hundred years. Any part of the Bible that doesn't jive with the modern intellectual mind, it's just got to be thrown out. You have to do away with it. We're we're modern. We're not into these ancient superstitions. So we've got to demythologize the Bible to make it into acceptable modern terms. And when you think like that, always the first doctrine to go is the doctrine of hell. That the modern mind just can't stand the idea of some place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. That, that's unacceptable. And, and they also think it, it, it's unpopular. It's going to turn too many people off to Christianity. No one's going to want to be a Christian if you're, if you're really believing in a place called hell. So in order to save Christianity from itself, they say, topics like hell have to go. It's been the strategy of liberalism for the past couple hundred years. But it happens in a couple different stages. It starts off with omission. First, you'll find churches just just simply not mentioning hell. Don't talk about it. Don't bring it up. 
not like they're outright denying it, but by omission, it, it's like it doesn't exist. And the people in the pews can go years and never even think about hell. It becomes like it's imaginary. And this sets up the next stage, which is to redefine hell. The idea of hell must be improved upon to make it acceptable to modern sensibilities. So it's kind of rework it a little bit. People in the pews, they don't know better because it's not like they've been well taught for years. And so the next thing they know, hell gets air conditioning. That's what happens. Hell is reworked. It's not so bad. It's like air-conditioned hell. This is where the idea of annihilationism comes from. Have you ever heard of that? You can probably figure out what it means, annihilationism. You know, the traditional biblical view of hell, it's a real place of conscious, eternal torment for the wicked. But that's, that's too unacceptable. So people, they want to go so far as saying that everyone's going to go to heaven. But they certainly don't want to think of people suffering forever for their sins. So the compromise is called annihilationism. And what that teaches is that people who go to hell, they don't suffer forever. They just they go out of existence. You, you, you die, God judges you, and then poof, you don't exist anymore. You don't feel anything, you don't know anything, you don't exist. You've been annihilated. And when you, when you think about that, if that, if that were true, well, it doesn't sound that bad. Like, not like you're suffering forever. It's, it's not that bad. And that's the point. It's not that bad. Hell, if that's hell, it's not that bad. Society shouldn't have that much of a problem with it. Yeah, you miss out on heaven, but it's not like you're suffering. And that's the point. For some liberal Christians, though, this doesn't go far enough. They start off by ignoring hell, then they redefine it, but eventually they, they just throw it out. Hell is denied. But there is no hell. Instead of trying to make it acceptable to the world, they just rid, get rid of the idea altogether. And that's where you get not annihilationism, but universalism. You may have heard of that. That's just the belief that, that everyone goes to heaven. Everyone, because God is so loving and full of love that eventually everyone just, just goes to heaven. Wicked, evil, doesn't matter. And who doesn't want to believe that? I mean, yeah, I, I, we'd all love to believe that. I mean, it's not the Bible at all, but who wouldn't want to believe that? But the overall problem is that when you start revising or removing the offensive parts of Scripture, it's not long until you start revising or removing the gospel itself. And that's exactly what has happened. You remove all notions of sin and judgment and hell and wrath. You realize we don't really need Christ to be our substitute sacrifice. We don't really need Jesus to die on the cross to pay for our sins. I mean, we're not sinners. There's no hell. We don't really need Jesus on the cross. And so in these liberal churches, even that gets dropped. Jesus, he's not really Savior. He's, he's our buddy. He's our example. He shows us what love is all about. But that, he's not really our Savior. We don't need that. And you lose the gospel. There's some deadly consequences. And so just listen, for us as a church, we dare not revise or remove the bad news of Scripture. And then there's some bad news. But we so desperately need to hear the bad news loud and clear, and I would even argue more often. Because it's, it's only when you are thoroughly convinced and humbled by the fact that you are a guilty sinner, justly deserving a punishment in hell, only when you really get that will you absolutely run with desperation to the cross of Christ where you find real mercy, real forgiveness, and eternal life. You've got to come to terms with the bad news. Otherwise, you will never accept the free offer of some really good news. And it's there. And that's why these warnings are in Scripture after all. The bad news is there to prepare us for the good news. Jesus didn't come just condemning everyone. You're going to hell. You're going to hell. He came warning. It's like, you're going to hell. Turn away. Turn away. Follow me. So you don't have to. And there is good news in that. All that being said, I hope you come to actually appreciate the Bible's teaching on hell. We don't need to fear it. We don't need to be ashamed of it. We don't need to change it. We don't need to hide from it. We don't need to remove it. We don't need to skip it. We need to hear it. We need to hear it. And we need to even tell others about it in love. Warning. And with that background in mind, we're going to return to Mark chapter 9 for a little bit. 
not going to turn this into a series, just a one-time extra sermon on Mark 9. I just want to focus our time, though, on just finding out what did Jesus say about hell? We, we could study the whole Bible, but we just don't have time. For a little one shot, I just want us to, to stick to the words of Jesus himself. What did he think about hell? What did he say about it? We'll pull in some other places in the Gospels, apart from Mark 9, where Jesus talked about it. But how does he define it? How does he think about it? What does he say about it? And, and how can we heed his warning? We're going to find out this morning. So we begin in Mark 9. It's the only place in Mark's short gospel that Jesus talks about hell, but he mentions it here three times. So let's, let's look at those three times once again. So Mark 9, and, and let's get back to verse 43, which we just read, but we'll do it again. Mark 9:43. He said, If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell and to the unquenchable fire. And in verse 45, very similar, he says, If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell. And then verse 47, If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now we're going to approach this. I just want us to put together Christ's concept of hell, well, what he believes. And we're going to start, start with this. Number one, hell is a real place of suffering. Number one, hell is a real place of suffering. A place called hell really exists. People will go there and it won't be pleasant. The fact that Jesus, he uses this word, which translated for us as hell, that tells us a lot already. The word in the Greek for hell here is Gehenna. Heard of that before? Gehenna. And it originally, were, the word just referred to a, a valley, a literal valley to the south of Jerusalem. But this valley came to take on a figurative meaning for the Jews, and it was used to refer to the place of suffering after death for the wicked, a.k.a. hell. So it's a fair question. How did this word, which just referred to a valley, go to being the word for hell. Well, back in the Old Testament, pagans worshipped this god called Molech. And where did they worship him? In the Valley of Hinnom, which is, that's the valley we're talking about. In that valley, south of Jerusalem. How did they worship this god Molech? Through child sacrifice. Putting their children through fire. It's the most detestable thing you could do before the Lord. And the only thing worse was seeing Israelites join in this practice. And guess what? They did. Wicked, the two wicked kings, Ahaz and Manasseh, picked up on this practice and they led Israelites into child sacrifice to the god Molech in the valley of Hinnom, or Gehenna. It's the worst thing ever. Literally, the worst thing ever. Thankfully, a good king rolled around, Josiah, and he put an end to the practice. But even more than that, he took it a step further and he defiled the whole valley. He turned the whole valley into a garbage dump, a refuse heap. All of the trash and the waste from Jerusalem was piled high in Gehenna. And it became this massive heap. And that included sometimes animal carcasses, human carcasses, just every form of decay went to this valley. And it became so bad that they had to burn it. But there was so much that it's like the fires never went out. The fires were continually burning Gehenna. Even by Christ's day, it was just a big garbage waste refuse pit that was always on fire. And that became the picture of hell. And so what does that tell you when all the Jews, including Jesus, they use this place, Gehenna, as a picture of hell? Hell is not literally a valley to the south of Jerusalem. But the point is, it is a real place of suffering. Gehenna became a picture of God's wrath poured out on wickedness. And hell, it's, it's like that. That's the point. You look there and you're seeing what hell is like. And Jesus, by Jesus using this word Gehenna, he is validating and, conf- and confirming that's what hell is like. Hell is a real place of suffering. It's a place of God's wrath and judgment and fire. And Jesus picks up on this word fire several times. 
Verse 43, he equates hell with the unquenchable fire. Verse 48, he says hell is a place where fire is not quenched. And the last time I checked, fire burns people, and it hurts real bad. Burn victims say it's the worst pain they could think of, and I don't think we, anyone's going to disagree with that. So what is the point of all this fire imagery? Have you ever wondered why is hell so closely associated with fire? And it is in the Bible. The point is to communicate, once again, this is a real place of suffering. It's not a vacation. It's not a party for all the bad people where they're just getting to do whatever they want. It's, it's a place of suffering. That's what the fire communicates, pain and affliction. Now, the question always comes up, so we'll talk about it. When talking about hell, and is this fire real or not? Is this talking about literal fire or figurative fire? Have you ever wondered that? There's no doubt that hell is associated with fire. Jesus associates them all the time. In the book of Revelation, the, the eternal place for all of the lost, including Satan and demons, it's called what? The lake of fire. You just picture that. Picture a lake like Lake Superior, this vast lake. And it's not filled with water. It's filled with gasoline. You just take that match and you throw it on. It just erupts into this consuming fire. Just, just, and what if the gasoline never went out? It just burnt forever. It's amazing to think about, is this really what hell is like? And the lost are floating around in this lake of fire forever? Or is it some equally you know, tormenting place like a, an oven? There's real fire and flames going on. Is that, is that what hell is like? It's a fair question. And the answer is, we, we don't know for sure. We, we, we don't know. There is some reason to believe that the fire is literal. When God judged people in the past, like Sodom and Gomorrah, sometimes he used literal fire to judge. It's totally possible. But it's also totally possible that Jesus is using fire figuratively here. Mark 9 is ripe with figurative language. He's talking about cutting off your arm, plucking out your eye, figurative for dealing with sin in your life like we learned last week. In the Old Testament, God his wrath is likened to fire. It's not fire, but he says his wrath will come like fire. And then you've got several passages that associate hell with outer darkness. Have you read those passages? Like Matthew 8, verse 12. It speaks of the unredeemed being cast into outer darkness. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. So you could say that if there's real fire in hell, it doesn't seem like there's going to be any places of darkness. This fire is illuminating, right? Seems like either the darkness is figurative or the fire is figurative. But here's the point. What is hell really like? Is it like outer space where you're just floating around in darkness, there's no sun or starlight, you're just total darkness, total isolation? Is that what it's like? Or is it like an oven, you're just literal flames and fires and you're being consumed but you live forever? What's it like? And the answer again is we, we don't know for sure. It is possible that we're dealing with figurative descriptions of hell even when it comes to that fire. But listen very carefully. Whether the fire of hell is literal or not, it's beside the point. Either way, the point is that hell is really, really bad. Do you understand? Either way, either way, hell is a real place of suffering. If the fire is real and literal, well then, yeah, you don't want to be in a lake of fire. That's not going to be pleasant. That's going to be a place of suffering. But even if the fire is not literal, it's figurative for something else, hell is still really bad. Why? Because in the Bible, figurative language is almost always used to describe something more intense than the symbol. So in other words, if it's not talking about a literal lake of fire, it's talking about something worse that we don't even have language to comprehend. The closest we can get is a lake of fire, but it's actually worse than that. So you get my point? Either way, it's bad. That's the point. This is a real place of suffering. We, we may not have the information to determine with certainty if hell is a place of real fire or not, but we do know with certainty that hell is a real place of, of suffering. You can all argue all you want about the fire and the darkness, but that won't change the fact that this is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's it really like? What's it really like? You know, I don't know. I don't want to find out. 
You don't want to find out the hard way. And that, that really is the point. You don't want to go and find out. It's bad and you're meant to fear it. There should be a healthy fear of hell. Like Matthew 10.28, Jesus said this. He said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Jesus said. So the first point, hell, it's a real place of suffering. People really go there. And wherever it really is, whatever it's really like, they go. It's a place of real suffering. Number two, hell is a real place of eternal suffering. We're just going to take this statement and we're actually just going to build on it. So secondly, we could say hell is a real place of eternal suffering. Jesus makes that crystal clear. Gehenna itself was known as a place of continually burning fire. The fire never went out there. Even more so, look in verse 43, again, of Mark 9. He calls it the unquenchable fire. In verse 48, the fire of hell is not quenched. The word for unquenchable will be familiar to you. Where is asbestos in the Greek? It literally it means not quenched or not extinguished. It used to talk about minerals and materials where you set them on fire, you couldn't put them out. Like calcium oxide, it's also known as quicklime. It burns with such an intensity that you can pour water on it, it won't go out. It, it's unquenchable, it's, it's insatiable. And that word, when it's applied to fire, is talking about a flame that just it won't go out. You can't put it out. It's inexhaustible, inextinguishable, unquenchable. And Jesus is saying that that's what hell is like. The point he's making is that the fires and the sufferings of hell, they're just as unquenchable. They don't end. They are eternal. Hell is a place of unending punishment. The fire doesn't go out. The fuel is never consumed. And Jesus adds in verse 48, he says the worm does not die. The point is either externally by way of fire or internally, picturing just decay by way of these worms, that they don't go away. This is an unending picture. And if it's not clear to you, just put your thumb in Mark 9 and turn to Matthew 25. Just turn backwards real quick to Matthew 25. This teaching is known as the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is talking about the future, and near the end he's talking about what's it going to be like when he returns. There will be a judgment. It's often referred to as the sheep and the goats judgment. And you're going to find out why. It's a really long passage. We don't have time to talk about it all. We're not going to go into all the details. Just want to highlight what's happening in this, in this judgment here. Matthew 25, and look at verse 31. Jesus says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. So I was picturing Jesus. He's coming back, second coming, in glory with the angels, sitting on his throne. Everyone who survived the tribulation, they're brought before him, and they're getting divided. The sheep, believers, go on his right. The goats, the unbelievers, they go on his left. Okay, basically, simple enough. Let's keep reading verse 34. Then the king, that's Jesus, he will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This sounds good. Believers, they enter the kingdom. Good. Now jump to verse 41, though. I want you to see what happens to the rest. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. This is not so good. Unbelievers, they are cast into hell, which was designed to be the eternal holding place for Satan and demons. That's where unbelievers go. And what does he call it, though? He calls it the eternal fire. The word eternal, ionios. Get the word ion for it. But this means eternal, talking about forever. And if you have any doubt in your mind, look at the last verse here, verse 46. Just summarizing, he says this at the very end. Talking about the sheep and the goats. He says, these will go away into 
eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And did you notice, he uses the exact same word in a parallel way, talking about the saved and the unsaved. The saved, they get eternal life. The lost, they get eternal death. And really, can that be, that verse, can that be any clearer from the mouth of Jesus that he thinks hell is eternal? It's pretty clear. If you want to deny that hell is eternal, you must deny that heaven is eternal. And really, if you deny hell, you're denying heaven. They rise, they fall together. But there's really none of that. It's very clear from Jesus himself that hell is a place of eternal suffering. Well, number three now, we're taking this statement. What is Christ? What is his view of hell? And we're expanding upon it. So number three, we could add this. Hell is a place of eternal suffering for lost sinners. Number three, hell is a place of eternal suffering for lost sinners. And you flip back to Mark chapter 9 now. Go back to Mark 9. One more point from this chapter. We think about Mark 9 and, and hell, it's, it's starting to sound bad. It's starting to sound really bad. And we wonder like, well, is anyone going there? Who's going? And he, he gives us some hints in Mark chapter 9. In the chapter, as we read these verses, who goes to hell? It says people who fail to cut off their hands and their feet and their eyes. That's who goes. But that's, of course, we learned last week, that's representative of those who are not cutting off the sin in their lives. These are people who are refusing to deal with the sin in their lives. They're living in unrepentant sin with, with no change, no remorse, no regret. If you don't kill your sin, it will kill you. Now look, keep in mind, this is just a little snippet of Christ's teaching. He's not giving a holistic lesson on sin and salvation. He says a lot more about sin and salvation. That's not the point. But it's a very clear connection in Mark 9 between sin and going to hell. It is those who do not deal with their sin who enter hell. That's the point. And the rest of the Bible tells us what that looks like to not deal with your sin, how to deal with your sin according to God's grace through Christ. But the point is, it's a correlation, not dealing with your sin and entering hell. And it, it actually doesn't say you enter hell. Verse 47 says you're cast into hell. You don't have much of a choice at that point. If you are unredeemed, you're cast, you're thrown in. You get the same picture at the final judgment in Revelation 20. Verse 14 says, This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And notice that phrase, though, in, from Revelation called the second death. You know what that means? Death in the Bible refers to separation. That's a simple concept that you just need to file away. Death in the Bible is talking about separation. Death does not mean the end of existence. So, sorry, annihilationism is just, it's just not true. Nobody goes out of existence. Everyone will live forever. question is, where? With God? Away from God? In his presence or cast out? That's the question. Everyone lives forever, but some people will die twice. There are two deaths you've got to worry about. The first death is your physical death. It's where your body is separated from your soul. That, that's what death is. It's a separation, body and soul. It's not your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is the second death, which is spiritual death. That's where you, as an entire being, you are separated from God, your creator. You're separated. That's what Romans 6.23 is talking about. Remember that verse? For the wages of sin is death. And that's talking about an eternal death. Notice the contrast in that verse. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is life? No, eternal life. Eternal life. Contrasted again with death, an eternal death. And what's the culprit? What, what sends you over? The wages of sin is death. This is how is a place for, for sinners. Sin separates us from God because he is holy. God must judge sin. He must remove sinners from his presence. His righteousness demands justice. And his holiness demands separation. So the punishment of hell is being cast away from God. Hell is the place where lost sinners go. They go away from God. As a side note, some people wonder, 
is hell simply the absence of God. Is that what hell is like? You ever heard that before? Hell is just the absence of God. And the answer is no, it's not. God is in hell. God's everywhere. The difference is that in heaven, God is present to bless. But in hell, God is present to curse. What makes hell so terrifying is not the absence of God, it's the presence of a just, holy God with wrath against sin. The people in hell, you're separated not from God, but from his loving kindness. And you know only his justice. And that's what makes it really bad. Hell is a place for lost sinners. But okay, so hell is a place for lost sinners, but who's really who are we talking about here? Who's really a lost sinner? And the answer is, after the fall, all of us, everyone in this room, and everyone in the world. It's so bad we're actually born spiritually dead. Or we enter the world in a state of, of sin. We are born sinners. We're cut off from God and we just pile it on throughout life. And what does it say? For all have sinned. Falling short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. We're, we're all in the boat. We're all sinners. And that's why the Bible calls us lost. We're lost <clears throat> sinners. And hell is a place where lost sinners go because God, he's just righteous. He can't tolerate sin and wickedness in his presence. He's that holy. He must separate and remove. And he's good to do so. But whenever you say this, there's always some people who think, they're the exception. Like, uh, okay, but I'm not, I'm not a bad person, though. I'm, he's not talking about me. I'm not like that. Just listen to this. Don't have to turn here, but listen to Matthew 5, where Jesus says, again, Jesus talking, Matthew 5, 21. He said, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. It's come from Jesus. That's what he said. And what's he saying? Look, how many people do you know who they they think, you know, hey, I, I haven't done the bad stuff. I'm not a murderer. I haven't robbed people. I'm not like those really bad people. I'm not hurting others. So why would I go to hell? That's for bad people. That's where bad people go. I'm a good person. Why would I go there? But you need to realize God will bring all sin into account, great and small, big or little, doesn't matter. And that's what Jesus is saying. All sin is an infinite offense to an infinitely holy God. And in Matthew 5, Jesus, he's saying that, that that little sin of anger or malice, he's saying it makes you just as guilty as murder. You're just as guilty. And you deserve the same guilty punishment, he says, fiery hell. It's coming from his mouth. And later he says the same thing about lust. You think adultery is bad, that's for the bad people. He said if you've even lusted, you're as guilty as an adulterer before God. And you're going to get the same punishment. So if you think hell is for bad people, you're right. Hell is for bad people. But what you need to realize is you're a bad person. And so am I. We are all bad people. We have sin. We're sinners. We All of us are. We're all in this boat. Whether by actions or just your thoughts, your speech, or even your intentions, each and every one of us has sin. And God has to deal with it. An infinitely holy God. No one wants to think about this. Nobody wants to think they're bad and they deserve hell. That, that goes against our new sinful natures, which love ourselves. Nobody wants to think this. 2003 survey, a Barna survey, showed that just 0.5% of people thought they were going to hell. Or they deserved hell. That is like statistically zero. 0.5% think they're going to hell. Most people, though, think they're good people. They're moral people. They're nice. They deserve heaven. It just shows you that most people have not come to terms with the absolute holiness of God and their own sinfulness. If you think you're the exception, here's your problem. You don't see sin the way God sees sin. You don't see sin as seriously as God sees sin. And this might help. Let me ask you this. What crime absolutely repulses you? What's the worst crime you can think of deserves the greatest punishment? To me, personally, no-brainer, 
It's child molestation. They're the pedophile. That, to me, is the worst person in the world. Now, God can forgive even that person. Don't get me wrong. But humanly speaking, to me, that's, that's the worst it gets, just personally. And, and I think our society agrees. The record in America for the longest prison sentence is 30,000 years. And it was given to Charles Scott Robinson, who is a convicted child rapist. And I'm fine with that. 30,000 years, not too short for me. But a crime like that, you hear that and it offends you. That crime offends you, doesn't it? It d- deeply offends you. But to be honest, I'm not that offended by anger. I mean, if someone gets angry, yeah, that's wrong, sin, but I'm not going to sentence them to 30,000 years in jail for it, right? But here's the thing. What if to God, your little bit of anger was just as repulsive as child molestation? What if? What if that's how God viewed your sin? Like he was that repulsed by your tiny little sins? You'd be in trouble. We'd be in trouble. Before God, your little sin of lust or anger or greed or malice, it would merit the same punishment as the murder and the rapist, the adulterer, you know, whatever, the thief. And you know what? That, that's how it is. That is how God views your sin. He is infinitely holy. So even the tiniest sin is an infinite offense. And this is why hell is eternal. Some people, they, they really struggle with that. And I understand it. It can be hard to think about, but that they, they wonder. The eternal punishment of hell, it doesn't seem like it fits the crime. Right? It doesn't seem like that, that's fair. Because look, we're here on earth, maybe for 70 years, 80 years, sinning it up, sure. But it's not like we're sinning for an eternal duration. So why would we go to hell forever? But again, they don't get the seriousness of sin. It's true that our sins are not eternal in duration. We only sin for a finite amount of time. That's true. However, each and every sin, even the tiniest one, is eternal in magnitude. It's eternal in magnitude. Each sin is infinite, not in duration, but in height. And that your every sin reaches into the heavens to God himself. Every sin is infinite. And it merits an infinite punishment. And that's why it just takes one sin for God to judge you and cast you out. Just one sin. That's all it takes. It's an infinite offense. I've had a glass of water here. Nice drinking water. And I just took one, one tiny little scoop of manure and put it in the water. Stir it around. Would you drink it? Just that one little scoop is enough for you to reject the whole glass, the whole thing. You don't want any part of it. And God's standard of holiness and righteousness is even higher than that. It's perfection. You've got to be perfect for him to accept you, and, and we're not. His holiness demands that he must remove sinners. His righteousness demands he must judge sinners. And who's a sinner? We all are. Hell is a des- destination for every single person, sinner, who is not redeemed. Hell is a real place of eternal suffering for lost sinners. It's not good news. There is some good news here. You can be redeemed. But like I said, before you can appreciate the good news, we've got to pile it on, the bad news, because that's what the Bible does. We've only said what Jesus has said, and there's one more piece of bad news to come before we get to the good stuff. Number four, lastly, hell is a real place of eternal suffering for lost sinners with no escape. We're building on this statement. And lastly, put it all together. Hell is a real place of eternal suffering for lost sinners with no escape. This is his view of hell. We're going to leave Mark now and turn to Luke 16. That will be our last passage. Luke 16. It's another long passage. It'll take us a long time to really explain it all. So we're not going to. A little bit controversial. Jesus tells the story of a rich man and a man named Lazarus. The rich man goes to hell and Lazarus goes to heaven. But the question is, is, is this a real story? Are these real people? Did this really happen? Or is he just is this a parable? This is a hypothetical you know, parable that he's making up to p- teach a point. And we don't really have time to enter the debate, but for our purposes, 
You know, it doesn't really matter because even if this is a parable, Jesus doesn't create lies and falsehood to teach truth. His parables are still true to life. They're still true to life stories. So what he teaches in parables, they're still, they're still truth. And so with that said, we're going to read this now, Luke 16, and start at verse 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died, and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. But the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. So I'll start off, I've got a story about two men. Rich man goes to Hades, which is the Greek word for hell. The poor man goes to heaven, depicted as Abraham's bosom. And they're able to see one another. It's really far away, but you have the idea of separation still. And here, you know, there's a lot of questions here. You don't have time for, like, is that really hell, what hell is like? You can, people in hell can see people in heaven. Is that like part of their torment? Or is that also just figurative? We have to dodge these questions for now. I just want to highlight, though, this man's torment. Either way, his torment is real. It's conscious. He's not annihilated. He's there, and he's stuck. He can't get out. Look at verse 24. The rich man cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. What's the picture? Separation, agony, suffering, hopelessness. He's got it so bad that he's just begging desperately for just a a touch of water on his tongue because he's in agony in this flame. And here, the flame is pictured as real. Again, figurative or not, it doesn't matter. It, he's suffering, and he can't, he can't get out. Look at verse 25. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between you and us, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. Again, whether this is hypothetical parable or real or not, the words that Christ places in Abraham's mouth, they they teach the same truth. That you go, wherever you go, you're stuck. There's no switching sides. There's a separation, and you can't switch teams. Where you end up, that's where you will be forever. If you don't deal with your sin problem in this life, if something's not done about your spiritual death, your separation from God, it will become permanent. And unchangeable. At that point, there's no way out. There's no escape hatch. There's no back door. You go, you're lost. That's why the Bible calls us lost. The picture is clear and consistent. Hell is a real place of eternal suffering for lost sinners with no escape. And this is all just coming from the mouth of Jesus. We've only looked at what he said. But like Hebrews 9.27 says, it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Most people today, most churches, they don't want to talk about this. They want to skip all this talk about hell because it's uncomfortable, it's hard to say, it's unpopular, makes people uneasy, they might leave. But let me assure you of this, that all the people who are in hell right now would so desperately wish that when they were alive, Someone had spoke to them clearly and warned them about hell. They're wishing that right now. And they're desperately wishing that someone would go and speak to their relatives and warn them before it's too late for them, before they wind up in hell as well. And that was true for the rich man. Let's finish this up. Look at verse 27. Basically, Abraham said to him, Hey, you're, you're not leaving. You're stuck. But what does he say in verse 27? And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, 
they do not listen to Moses and the prophets. They will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Now, an obvious point is being made about Jesus, his rejection, even amidst resurrection. That's the point, actually. But, but there's a lesson for us here as well. There's a warning to be heeded. If you're still breathing, you got a chance. If you're still alive, you don't have to go to this place called hell. When Jesus came, he didn't come just outright denying and uh, condemning everybody. He came warning everybody while they still had a chance, while they still had time, that there was a way of escape. You, you can be saved. And even more so, Jesus didn't come to show the way of escape. He came to provide the way of escape. Jesus is the way of escape. How can a person be saved from this fate? Talk about a lot of bad news. So how can you be saved from that? How do you not go to hell? That's what I want to know now. How do you not go? And the answer is not by anything you can do. I mean, your works, your efforts, you're not going to contribute. The only thing your works provide is more sin, more condemnation. There's nothing you can do. You're already not a good person. You've already sinned. It just takes one sin. When it comes to you, you're, you're done for. You have no hope when it comes to what you can do. But thankfully, it's not about what we can do. It's about what the Lord did for us through Jesus. Jesus came. He died on the cross as a substitute sacrifice, contrary to liberalism. He was our substitute on the cross. He died in your place. He bore your penalty. The wages of sin is death. He died your death. The wrath of God is poured out against all unrighteousness. He bore your wrath. The wrath that you deserved, he took that. Unholy sinners must be removed from God's presence. On the cross, Jesus, he endured your separation. That should have been yours. He took it. Like 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness, righteousness of God in him. This is what God did through Jesus out of true love to save sinners. And Jesus himself, he conquered death, both the first death and the second death through his resurrection. And it's only now through him that you don't just find forgiveness, you find life. You find eternal life. Not eternal death, eternal life. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Or Sunday school verse, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So the ultimate question you need to ask is will you Follow Jesus as Lord of your life, believing in him, trusting in his work on the cross to save you. Like Jesus said, will you lose your life to save it? Give your life over to just following him. And if you will, by faith, believing on him, then by God's grace, you will inherit not eternal death when you die the first time, which you deserve. You inherit eternal life after you die the first time. And you will never die a second time. You receive eternal life, you will be saved. And that is why the Bible calls us saved. You ever asked, like, what are we saved from? Well, now you know. We're saved from this. We're saved from hell. We're saved from the wrath to come. And if that's you, if you're here and you have been saved, you have placed all of your hope, your entire life into Jesus by faith, then that's some good news that you can be saved and you are saved, that's, that's good news. You should put a smile on your face after a very heavy sermon. That's some good news. And that's why the message of Jesus came to be called the gospel, which means good news. The good news is that even though hell is a real place of eternal suffering for lost sinners with no escape, even though that's all true, you can be saved from it before you get there. You don't have to go there. You can be redeemed. In life, you have your chance. This is your chance. This life is your only chance. Go to Jesus. Give him your life. Believe. Follow. 
be saved. If you don't, you've been warned. Our culture has lost the fear of hell. Hell has become a curse word, a joke. Even Christians, they don't want to talk about it. But the most loving thing you can do for others is to warn them that there's danger up ahead. Not, we don't have to condemn people. We're warning them in love. Turn back while there's still time and, and follow the Lord. That's what Jesus did. He came speaking more than anyone about hell. Not to condemn, but to provide, to show the way of escape. So for us, heed his warning, accept his call, become his disciple, and then warn others before it is too late. Let's pray. And Father in heaven, we have to thank you for including in your word the Bible a lot of teaching about hell. It's not fun. It's not pleasant. We don't want to think about this. It's condemning to ourselves because we realize we, we should be there. We are deserving. It just condemns us. But we're so thankful that you have included this word of warning in Scripture that, that sinners can turn. There is not, you don't have to go there. We can be saved. And more than just including it in your word, you have provided that way of escape by sending your son Christ to the world to live, to die on the cross, to pay the penalty for sin, to rise again, to conquer the second death. We are so thankful for that. It, it gives a new meaning to good news. And it's by that we are saved. We believe that, we confess that, and now we rejoice. Pray that every Christian in here, those who know their salvation, that they leave actually rejoicing and counting their blessings, thanking the Lord, smiling, that even though hell is a real place of torment and suffering eternally for lost sinners with no way of escape, that we don't have to go there, that Christ paid our way out, and we can be with you forever. Thank you for that. And Lord, we pray those who came here this morning, maybe just just to, they don't know you or they just here for the first time, that they heed the warning. We all need this warning. Even those who've been in the church for 20 years, we need the warning continually to beware that hell is real and we don't want to be there. But by your grace, we can be saved. So I pray that those who haven't, that they turn today. They turn to you by faith. They repent of their sin. They cry out for salvation and you will make them born again. And we pray for them. We just lift up your name now and praise overall. Thanking our Savior for all he has done for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.